Good morning. Thank you uh, for welcoming me here today. So let's, let's continue with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we come together today to praise your holy name. We thank you for how far you have brought us. Only you know, Lord, what each person here needs to hear. Use this time and this talk as a doorway of grace so that each person here grows in their relationship with you and your people, especially those with whom they're having the most difficulty. Teach us all, Lord, how to love like you love. We pray all this through Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So again, my name is Cindy Valco, and I live in Ames, Iowa. So again, thank you for welcoming me here today. Because I know, uh, you know, as a cyclone, you know, what I'm facing over here. <laughs> good, good. One other cyclone. Um, I was born in Iowa, and I was baptized a Catholic at St. Joseph's Church in Wesley, Iowa, 13 days later. I grew up on a farm where my dad raised corn, beans, and hogs, and my mom raised us kids, nine of us, four boys and five girls. I'm the second oldest, the oldest girl. My parents were hard workers, and they expected a lot from us. I feel like I worked harder as a child than I do now. My parents gave us kids a lot, and we were blessed in many ways. I was surrounded by the Catholic faith and didn't even know anyone who wasn't Catholic until seventh grade, when we Catholic school kids walked down the street to take science, math, and PE at the public school. I was one of the shyest kids you ever met, if you could manage to meet me. I was afraid to answer the phone or the doorbell at home because I didn't know what to say. I practically hid in my locker at high school because I was afraid of the sister who walked down the halls with a ruler. <laughs> Add to that my glasses and braces, and I wasn't winning any popularity contests. Almost no one knew who I was. My first college visit was to an all-girls Catholic college, but I didn't want all those college rules, or those Catholic rules, just like high school. I wanted to shake the dust off my non-existent image and try something new. I applied to Iowa State University without even ever seeing it. With 25,000 students, I wanted a chance to shed my shy persona. Every day as I walked to class, I made myself say hi to every person I passed. They thought I was kind of weird, but that helped me break out of my shell. When I met my future husband as a freshman, I liked it that he was four years older and that he was from far away upstate New York. He had also been raised Catholic and went to Catholic schools. He was in graduate school at Iowa State studying chemistry. I fell in love with him and we were married in the church after my junior year. We were both good students and I thought we would be able to think our way through life, making good decisions and avoiding mistakes. 
It would be easier, I thought, to be married than it was to be alone. Our daughter was born the next year. We lived on next to nothing and scraped by using our wedding gift money to get through. We both struggled to get jobs and our daughter went to daycare. I went to mass, but I was really only a pew warmer. I wasn't so much interested in heaven as in just not going to hell. We, we managed to buy a fixer-upper house and pay off a car, and I quit my job to stay home with our daughter and then a son. The first thing on my mind when I woke up was how much money was in our bank account. I knew how much we had and how much I could spend that day. If I didn't know, I would sit down with my checkbook first thing and find out. Our progress toward financial success was crushingly slow and I tried a variety of things from home to earn more money. One of my friends convinced me to try selling cosmetics, the brand known for a certain color car. <laughs> you know what I mean. I had dollar signs in my eyes and I wanted to earn a car. Not having a car payment was a big incentive to get over my shortcomings and make it happen. I decorated my gold posters and tried everything my sales director suggested to help me grow my business. I went to all the sales meetings and listened to company cassette tapes in my car and at home. One business tool for time management was a paper chart of the hours of the week with seven columns of 24 rows of boxes. I was instructed to color code my, my obligations. Family, work, social, well there wasn't a whole lot of social, uh, and then fill in the boxes. Any leftover white space was time to fill in with sales appointments. I decided to use my favorite color, blue, for faith. After all, my company's <coughs> motto was faith first, family second, career third. I filled in the 8 to 9 a.m. slot on Sunday mornings for mass, but that was it. No more blue. I needed to leave as many hours open for business appointments as I could. I taped the chart to my basement wall by my business phone. That's back when phones were hanging on a wall. <laughs> I kind of forgot it was even there until I was about to close a sale with a new referral. Lee was an engaging woman and so put together. I was drawn to her and intimidated by her at the same time. I was admiring her and wishing I could be like her when she abruptly got up and to take a closer look at my chart. She interrupted the flow of my usual appointment and asked, what is this blue box for? I told her it was for church. I didn't even want to say mass. And she demanded to know where the other blue boxes were. I was stunned. Wasn't that good enough? After all, I hadn't given up mass to get ahead. I wanted to tell her to butt out. But the look on her face stopped me. While I was sputtering for an explanation, she invited me to her Bible study. Well, that was the last thing on my mind. I put her off. She purchased some things and left. But the look on her face haunted me. I couldn't quite get over it. Lee became a regular customer, and she kept inviting me to her Bible study. Lee finally wore me down, and I went. I had never been to anything like it. This was a serious 
interdenominational Bible study. Very challenging, very structured. About 100 women, a one-hour one lecture on scripture that we read ahead of time to prepare, followed by an hour-long group discussion. At the end of every discussion, there was a several-page packet of reading and questions to answer before the next week's session. No socializing unless you came early or stayed after, which many women did, including me. I noticed that the leadership emphasized certain things over and over. God's word is true. God's word can be trusted. The Bible is the living word of God. Jesus is the perfect teacher. Jesus is coming again. The way these concepts were worded, they seemed completely new to me. I asked myself, do we really believe Jesus is coming again in the Catholic Church? Later, when I was paying more attention to Mass, I realized we say this at every Mass. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. But I had become numb to the words and wasn't paying much attention. Was I going to continue in this Bible study? At the time, I had a really hard time making decisions of any kind. Lee gave me this three-question tool to discern God's will. What are circumstances telling you? What do godly people have to say about it? Do you have peace in your heart? I spent time answering those questions for myself, and I didn't see anything in conflict with my Catholic faith, so I decided to continue in the Bible study. And I started applying these three questions to all my decisions. Only the women who had answers prepared for the study questions were allowed to enter the group discussion. While well, that was motivating, I spent hours each week on my own looking up related texts and other parts of the Bible and reflecting in order just to answer the study questions. I was surprised to learn just what was in the Bible. You mean it was Jesus who said, it is better to give than to receive? That's in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. I honestly thought that was something Hallmark made up. <laughs> Designed to make people buy more gifts at Christmas time. The first year's study was Matthew, and when I completed it, that was the first time I had read and studied the Bible chronologically, from the beginning of the gospel to the end. Of course, I'd heard it before by attending Mass, but the study set the events of Jesus' life in order and in the context of his times firmly in my mind, and I was slowly getting to know the person of Jesus. Each year was a different study. So after Matthew, we studied the Minor Prophets one year, Genesis the next, and then we came to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, John, starts with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those words can only be true of one person, and that's Jesus. I needed everything proved to me and backed up by scripture. However, when I gave my answers in the discussion group, I often saw the discussion leader with an odd look on her face. Was I wrong? 
No, that, that wasn't it. I began to realize my Catholic education didn't give me chapter and verse, but it had given me some insights others didn't have. At the time I was on the hospitality team for the, for the study, but secretly I desired to be a discussion leader. Other women were asked, but not me. It wasn't easy for me to ask Lee about it, but she let me know that my Catholic faith was the obstacle. Because part of what the Catholic Church teaches is not found explicitly in the Bible, Catholics were excluded from leadership. That might have made some Catholics walk away, but I didn't. Leadership in the Bible study meant twice the amount of preparation. So I told myself I didn't really want to be in leadership anyway. I had already discerned I needed to dial back my business and give up my ambitions of leadership, fame, and fortune in the cosmetics world. But the thought of leadership didn't go away. I was asking other women about their churches to see if any of them had anything to offer over my parish. I was weighing the pros and cons and drifting further from the things that distinguish the Catholic faith from the Protestant denominations, like the moral teachings, the sacrament of reconciliation, the personally hard things. I was giving myself a free pass to believe what was easy for me. I prepared for the upcoming lesson on John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, followed by Jesus' discourse, I am the bread of life. Part of this should sound familiar to us because it was this past Sunday's gospel for the Feast of Corpus Christi, as the Archbishop mentioned. This feast is more modernly known as the Feast of the, of the Body and Blood of Christ. So from John 6, starting at verse 52, the Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Well, this was going to be interesting. Some Protestant denominations have a form of communion, some don't. How would the leadership handle it? So imagine my shock when I heard the lecturer say, in these passages, Jesus is speaking in symbolic language. I wanted to stand up and ask, hey, so where's the usual line? God's word is true. God's word can be trusted. I got home and examined it over and over. And this is what I saw. What does Jesus promise to those who eat his body and drink his blood? And these are just right from scripture. They will never hunger and never thirst. They will not die. They will live forever. They will have eternal life and will be raised on the last day. He does this for the life of the world. Whoever does this remains in him and he in them. They will have life. 
They will live forever. Three times, Jesus says, I am the living bread. Five times, he refers to his flesh. Four times, he refers to his blood. Seven times, he uses the word eat or feed. And four times, drink. And Jesus did not call those who left him back to explain. He didn't say, hey, that's not what I meant. Instead, Jesus gives his apostles the option to leave. And they can't do it. They don't even want to seem to, they don't even seem to want to stay, but they can't deny it. They have to stay. They say, to whom, Lord, should we go? I looked at the scripture from every angle. I looked everywhere for the loophole that would allow me to believe that the host I consumed at mass was really a symbol. I wanted to believe what the leadership was telling me. If I believed that the Eucharist was a symbol, then I could leave the Catholic Church and finally be a leader. But I couldn't do it. The leadership had taught me too well. God's word is true. God's word can be trusted. The Bible is the living word of God. Jesus is the perfect teacher. Like the apostles, where else was I going to go? I was forced to conclude that Jesus' flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And the Catholic Church is the place to get it. I used my three-question tool to discern to, to discontinue the Bible study. When I went to Sunday Mass, I looked around and kind of studied the people that were there. It didn't seem like anyone else was getting it. Did these people know that this was the body and blood of, of Jesus? It just seemed to me like there would have been something different than there was before. The Mass seemed to be just the way it always was. Nobody seemed all that reverent. I didn't see anyone carrying any books or rosaries around. No one was shouting for joy at the moment of consecration. I missed the socializing and fun I used to have at Bible study. And to fill in the gap, I went to daily mass. I replaced my business recordings with Catholic CDs. Well, cassettes first and then CDs. <laughs> and started listening to those in the car instead. Previously, I had avoided Catholic books. I thought they would be dull and hard to read in sort of a Latinish language. <laughs> and that's one I just made up. <laughs> but my mom gave me a book about Catholic motherhood, and I was surprised how it pulled me in. I was ple pleasantly reading along and contrasting the joys of Catholic families as they described it with my own somewhat less than optimal experience of family life when I came to the section about contraception, describing it as a grave moral danger, always intrins intrinsically evil, I had a sudden and shocking realization of how much serious sin there was in my life. My friend Kelly says there are three ways to fall into a pit. You can jump in, you can be pushed in, or you can slip in. Over time, my husband and I had slipped into a pit. We put limits on our love. 
We had made an unspoken contract with each other that we would only love each other so far. We would love each other enough to be able to use each other for our own selfish purposes. But we didn't love each other enough to want to have another child together. It went beyond that because we also didn't trust God enough to, to supply whatever we would need for a child, whether that was more energy, more time, or more love. It's just a fact of life that whatever you do in one area of your life spills over to the other areas. For example, psychologists teach that if you try to numb your emotions in one area of your life, you'll numb your emotions in all areas. Because we placed limits on our bodies, there were limits in all kinds of other places. We just didn't see them. There were limits on our time, our money, our energy. Our prayer life was limited to prayers before meals and a quick angel of God with the kids before bed. And that was just me. Even though I spent so much time on scripture, I wasn't able to pray. And we certainly didn't pray together, my husband and I. It's difficult to remember just how devastated I was. And it's not because I can't remember, it's because it was so difficult. Because I knew in my heart of hearts that I really wanted more children. But my husband and, uh, and my conversation was limited. And I didn't have the courage to speak up for myself. I was afraid my husband wouldn't love me anymore if I didn't agree with him about our family size. I was in the pits of despair. I was hopeless and afraid that God wouldn't forgive me. There is a reason Satan is called the father of lies. Because that was a lie. God is always ready to forgive. But at the time, I really didn't know what to do to get myself out of that pit. The only thing, the only person that saved me was the thought that I should pick up my Bible. I thumbed through the pages and read and reread two stories, the prodigal son and the woman about to be stoned. And then I felt like the woman about to be stoned. <laughs> Would God forgive me for all that I had done? I had to find out because pain is a powerful motivator. Like the prodigal son, I needed to go to the father and ask for forgiveness. And then like the woman about to be stoned, I would have to go and sin no more. I needed the sacrament of reconciliation to get out of the pit I was in. But seriously, how was I going to confess these sins out loud? I was ashamed. And as much trouble as I had speaking up before, I certainly didn't want to speak up now. Who, Lord? I carefully considered the three or four Franciscan priests at our parish at the time and worked out the pros and cons. But Mary, our Blessed Mother, made the decision for me. One priest wore a long black rosary hanging from his rope belt, and I knew he was the one. With trembling hands, I dialed the parish office to ask for private reconciliation. I knew I'd have to go face to face, but the only reason I made an appointment was because I didn't want to hold up the line on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> that long. 
after about a solid hour of confessing, I stopped, and Father Ed asked if I knew what my principal sin was. I didn't even know what he meant. Was it like in the Lord of the Rings? Was this the one sin to rule them all? I couldn't even guess. And he told me, pride. How could it be pride? I wasn't proud of these sins at all. The pride Father Ed meant was that I thought I knew better than what the Catholic Church teaches. I wanted to live by my own rules, and I would decide what was right and wrong. Well, I was finished with that. Instead of looking for the loopholes, I decided to accept what the Catholic Church teaches first. Then, if, if needed, do the research to learn why she teaches what she teaches. After all, I do live in a, a research town, you know. Hmm. So it's not just a bunch of old unmarried men making up the rules at the Vatican like I thought. God set up his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I felt like God had taken me by the hand, swung me hard around 180 degrees, and set me on a new, not-so-comfortable path. Remember how hard I was on the parish when I felt they didn't understand what was going on at Mass? Now it was me that felt like an imposter. I was the sinner. After a time, I started to trust that I was forgiven, but I wasn't going to be able to go back to living the way I was. I committed to learning natural family planning and using it. My husband was not thrilled. It was very difficult for him, and he let me know it. But gradually, the door to more communication opened. I started to feel and know how much he really did and does love me, because he stuck with me, even though he didn't understand why it was so important to me. Jesus had a lot of heavy lifting to do, and it took time. I was impatient to move on and only a few close friends knew what I was going through. I wanted to do something to show God I was really committed. I didn't think I could promise to go to Mass every day for the rest of my life, but I did think I could pray a five-decade rosary every day. That was a place to start. I soon had to tell God I would average a rosary a day. <laughs> Sometimes I would get up to four rosaries built up, and then I would stay up at night fighting through them. Eventually I learned how to pray the rosary anywhere and everywhere, a decade at a time throughout the day. About this time, my sister Suzanne sent me the booklet, Rosary Meditations with Mother Teresa. I was praying through the booklet when I came across some pamphlets for the Apostolate for Perpetual Eucharistic Adoration. So I read those too. The pamphlet described how the Blessed Sacrament would be exposed in a monstrance. People would commit to a particular hour during the week and they would follow each other, hour after hour, week after week. I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about here. Jesus in his body, blood, soul, and divinity would truly be there for each person, whether they were scheduled for that hour or they were just stopping by. People won't make that kind of commitment to a piece of bread or an empty room. 
Jesus would call the people to himself and give them the grace to respond. Those who come are essentially sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus promised to teach them himself. When I finished reading, I got down on my knees in my bedroom and prayed, God, we at St. Cecilia's really need this. This would be so good. Immediately, I heard a voice in the back of my head say very loudly and deeply, although not audibly, you should do this. The memory of that exact voice has faded now, but it was so distinct, it stayed with me for years. Well, I didn't mean me. So, uh, no, I did not want to do this. I explained to God that I was busy, like, like he didn't know what I was up to. I had two children. I was the co-chair of the Family School Association. I took care of my cosmetics customers. I volunteered at the school. I was sure I was too busy. Well, that conversation with God lasted about five minutes until something I had read recently came to mind. If God ever tells you to do something, don't put it off. Do it right away. I made myself get up off the floor, walk down the hall to the kitchen, and dial my pastor on the phone. It was attached to the wall, remember? <laughs> hmm, maybe Father won't be there. Maybe he won't think it's a good idea. Lord, I'll do this, but if he says no, I'm out. The phone rang. Is Father there? Oh, he is? <laughs> May I talk to him, please? Father, do you have some time? I would like to talk to you about starting perpetual Eucharistic adoration at St. Cecilia's. Oh, tomorrow afternoon at 1? <laughs> Thoughts were racing through my mind. So soon? I was expecting next week for sure. My calendar uh, looks free. Okay, see you then. Hanging up the phone, I said, Lord, maybe he'll say no tomorrow, and I'm out. However, Father was excited to talk to me and agreed it would be a good idea to have perpetual Eucharistic adoration at St. Cecilia's. I remember saying the words, I will do whatever it takes, and not knowing where those words came from. The process started by scheduling a priest for a sign-up weekend in November 1996 and preparing the parish. It was a short time frame, only two to three months lead time. The packet from the apostolate laid everything out in a tidy schedule. I was to make copies of four different flyers, one for each of the weekend, weeks leading up to the weekend. Scheduled talks with as many parish groups that month as possible, the Knights of Columbus, Catholic Daughters, the Circles, explain Eucharistic adoration, encourage them to sign up during the upcoming weekend, and on top of that, identify the other needed leaders. One month to get ready, one month to pull it off. I did this all the while going back and forth in my mind. Did the parish have enough committed people to do it? Well, this was a dumb idea. No, no, it could work. What if it does work? Lord, if not enough people sign up, I'm out. 
I'll give it a try. If they say no, no hard feelings. I'm out. <laughs> a week before the inserts were to start in the bulletin, one of the new associate priests unexpectedly went to the hospital with heart trouble. At only 52, Father Mike looked fit. Surely nothing to worry about. A few days later, Father Mike died. This threw the whole parish, and particularly the Franciscan priests, into an uproar. I was supposed to get an insert into the bulletin that weekend, and I was such a rookie, I had no idea how to do it. I didn't feel like I could approach our pastor or the secretary for anything as trivial as that when all oh, the funeral and the family coming and all that was going on. I thought, Lord, is this it? Am I out? <laughs> a week later, the pastor didn't hesitate. Just put the first two flyers in this weekend and get back on schedule. Why couldn't I think of that? Maybe because it was too busy thinking, I was too busy thinking, I'm out. I spoke to groups at the parish and the leaders needed for the program came forward. However, I was walking out of the Knights of Columbus meeting next to their chaplain, Monsignor Supple, the longtime pastor of the rival parish in town. At about 5'2", wildly popular and affectionately known as James from Ames, Monsignor Supple looked up at me and said, that's a nice idea, young lady, but it'll never work here. I just smiled a weak smile and thought, you know, Lord, if that's the case, I'm out. <laughs> but there was a solid daily mass group and one hour a week of directed Eucharistic adoration with set prayers and periods of silence. I had been to it once, and I knew the couple, John and Doris Kleinschmidt, who took turns leading the hour. John and Doris's son, Jim, was almost completely paralyzed from a bicycle accident as a young Iowa, student, Iowa State student. He couldn't move and he couldn't speak. John and Doris took care of Jim 24-7 with such joy that it inspired our whole parish. 20 or less people usually showed up with uh, John, John or Doris, but surely those people would sign up. But even John confided to me one day on the way into daily mass, Cindy, I just don't know if this is going to work. Well, you know, Lord, if it doesn't. <laughs> so no one was going to be coming to the chapel because I asked them to. Either Jesus himself was going to be there and he was going to draw doors to himself, or that would be it. Jesus was going to have to do the heavy lifting. I, figure, I figured I needed to try out perpetual Eucharistic adoration at least once before we got started. The chapel at St. Cecilia's in Algona, Iowa is about 10 miles from where I grew up. Their adoration program uh, started after I left home. After 10 minutes and a quick, few quick prayers, I was, I was ready to leave the chapel. The only other person there suddenly stood up and was gone. I looked at the clock, three o'clock straight up. She thought I was the substitute. Okay, Lord, is this a test? Would I leave the exposed Blessed Sacrament alone? 
okay, it's not my parish. I'm not the adorer. Yes, I am. I was called. Jesus needs me in this exact hour at this exact place. I'm staying. I, I, it felt like the longest hour of my life. I had never prayed a whole hour and 10 minutes <laughs> all together before. I just hoped the next adorer would show up on time, and they did. The adorer is counting on that next person to be there. And that experience made me take seriously the need to support the adorers and ensure that substitutes are always found. The Sunday night after the sign-up weekend, the priest and the leaders and I gathered together to count the slips and slot the people into the schedule. 580 people had signed up, with 320 who checked that they would be willing to come in the night between midnight and 6 a.m. The priest told us it was the most people that had ever signed up for a nighttime hour in a single parish. I was stunned. And I was in. <laughs> Jesus was doing the heavy lifting. Perpetual Eucharistic Adoration started at St. Cecilia's in December 1996 on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. I'm grateful to all those who stepped up to be hourly coordinators and division leaders. I just have to add at this point that at our meetings, we always pray the rosary for priests and vocations. <laughs> Those people had to put up with me as I learned the ropes of the program right along with them. We lost one third of the adorers the first month. The people who thought they were signing up for one week and didn't understand it was week after week. They didn't get the memo that perpetual means never ending. <laughs> it doesn't mean individuals don't come and go, but it's like mass in that it's a weekly commitment. We have a number of adorers who have been coming the entire 20 years, some at the same hour the entire time. That includes one man at 2 a.m. on Wednesdays who every time he sees me always reminds me he thought he was signing up for just one week. <laughs> At the same time, Jesus was doing a lot of heavy lifting for me personally. There was nothing I could say or do, and I tried, that made NFP and abstinence any easier for my husband. Our son was already 10 years old by now, and neither of us felt like it would be a good idea to have a child so far apart in age from the others. So our discussions revolved around whether it would be two or none. After a 12-year gap, our third child, a daughter, was born in 1998. And our fourth child, a son, was born two years later. It was his birthday yesterday. <laughs> I saw firsthand how God changes, changes hearts and minds, especially my own. Well, with those um, two more children, uh, I was busy, and by 2002, the Eucharistic Adoration Program had lost a number of adorers and leaders. Adorers move out of town, they change their schedules, even some die. Adorers, uh, and our program was in, in danger of falling apart. Another priest from the Apostolate came to give a four-night mission. With additional dedicated leaders and a maintenance plan that included an annual sign-up weekend, a yearly retreat, 
and a Corpus Christi procession. The program was holding steady by the time Father Nienhaus became our pastor in 2006. Father Nienhaus had not experienced it in his previous parishes, and he sensed just how important Jesus' presence was in the life of the parish. The number of adorers grew each of the three years Father Nienhaus was our pastor. I was truly thrilled the day Father Nienhaus called me from his new parish, here at St. Patrick's, wanting to know how he could get Eucharistic adoration started. God directed him along a unique path for St. Patrick's, and it is truly a joy to see Eucharistic adoration spread to another parish and city. One of my ex favorite experiences during this time happened at Sunday Mass. I wasn't just mumbling through the prayers and responses at Mass anymore. That day as I prayed the Our Father, I couldn't hear my own voice. I was speaking, but nothing was coming out. I checked. All, all I could hear was the sound of everyone else praying the Our Father together, loud in my ears. I was confused by what was happening until it seemed to me God was telling me, take notice. This is how I, God, see your parish. They are praying to me in one voice. That experience made me deeply appreciate my parish community. So many adorers over the years shared their answers to prayer that I have no doubt God can answer any prayer. Our chapel has a book of intentions right inside the door, and pages are filled every day with the intentions of adorers and visitors to the chapel. It is so comforting knowing people are praying for those intentions day and night. I've written numerous prayers there myself over the years. One evening, while I was writing this talk, a text came in. It was almost midnight. The texter was the, ador the adorer at the hour before mine. The only way I know her is from the parish, although she is now a close friend. It was so close to midnight and she was asking for prayers. Their teenage son was burned in a bonfire and they were at the hospital. They wouldn't know until the next day how bad it would be. My heart broke for them and I told them I was driving to the chapel right then to write their intentions in the book. I interrupted the two adorers there to ask for their prayers and they promised they would. After some prayers of my own, I got back in the car. I wasn't needed at the hospital then, but my friend asked me to visit the next day. When I did, they had removed the bandages from the front of his body. The majority were first degree, and the second degree ones didn't need grafting. After another night, he went home from the hospital. Some could say the outcome would have been the same with or without prayer although I don't believe that. Even more importantly, the family felt loved and supported by their community when they really needed it. Remember the three-question discernment tool I spoke about earlier? With the help of Father Nienhaus and later Father Richmond, a priest from the country of Ghana, who studied at ISU, and they were my spiritual directors, I learned to do, as I call it, the awkward thing. Rather than depend on my own thoughts, I started listening to that small whisper in my head. 
Sometimes an idea or thought would come to me at Mass or during Eucharistic Adoration, but more often than not, it would be at some random time. Sometimes it was something I needed to do right away. Something, sometimes it was something I needed to plan. But if someone had been watching me back then, they would have wondered what in the world was going on. At the chapel, I would get a nudge that I needed to speak to Father Neenhouse. I didn't want to talk to Father Neenhouse. <laughs> He's kind of intimidating. <laughs> so I would tell the Lord he had to put Father Neenhouse in my path on the way to my car. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> there Father would be walking right toward me. After I got used to that, I'd get a nudge to go to Father's office. I didn't want to do that either. I tried to go to my car and leave, and I couldn't. I would get a feeling that I would like I would regret leaving, and that I was disobeying. Even that I would need to confess it, a reconciliation. Well, I, I hated that even more. So I would walk back to the church door and try to go in. I'd talk myself out of it and go back to the car. I'd go to the church door and go back to the car. <laughs> You can see that door from the school, and I used to think, gosh, if somebody in the office is watching, <laughs> I wonder what was going on. So I, this would go on until I finally worked up the courage to go to the office. I didn't have anything to talk about. I was just to go. And sure enough, Father would be at his desk saying he needed to talk to me about something or other. It happened so often, I learned to give up and do the awkward thing. Like saying yes when Father Neenhouse asked me to give this talk. <laughs> Over the 20 years since Eucharistic Adoration started, God worked hard with me to get me to the sacram sacrament of reconciliation on a monthly basis. This became a habit for me because of Our Lady of Fatima. I first learned about our Blessed Mother's request for a daily rosary and monthly reconciliation from a booklet I received as a child from my grandfather called Our Lady's P Peace Plan from Heaven. I couldn't even read when, he, when I got it from him due to strange circumstances, but as I, I, I hung on to it, I still have the booklet today, and uh, that booklet made a, a big impression on me. This year marks the 100th anniversary of Mary's appearances in Fatima, Portugal. And you too can learn about the, de the details of, first Saturday, of the First Saturday devotion online. Because of the practice of monthly reconciliation, the channel of grace that I longed for has been largely unblocked. As I learned obedience and gradually grew in virtue and love of neighbor, and that kind of came last, God has granted me many of my deepest desires. It took time for me to grasp that God loves me, a sinner, and God deeply desires happiness for me and each one of you. He longs to free us from the mire that sinfulness creates in our life. One thing I really wanted was to pray together as a couple. My husband wasn't interested. After many failed attempts, about two years ago, I did the awkward thing and listened. I heard, start each day with the sign of the cross. 
only. Well, my husband could agree to that. For a few weeks, when we woke up, we made the sign of the cross together. Then, of course, there was some concern with one of the kids. I don't remember exactly what it was, and I quickly added it. My husband said, amen. That practice gradually grew until now we start each day with our prayers. We connect with God and each other first thing every day. Early in our marriage, I said I'd like to work with my husband. He probably doesn't remember it, but he scoffed so vigorously, I was hurt. Recently, in a very gradual and natural way, and in association with our priest friend, Father Richmond, first me and later my husband, started working to establish a nonprofit organization in Ames to provide shelter for pregnant moms who need help. The whole board for the organization, Martha's House of Hope, consists of only four Catholic couples. So there weren't a whole lot of people to choose from when we needed a new president, a president. And my husband was elected president kind of by default. I'm the secretary, and I thought I might end up with both the president and the secretary duties. But that is not the case. I am so proud of the work he is doing and the leadership he provides. While Martha's House of Hope will someday be an answer to a pregnant mom's prayer, what my husband is doing now is an answer to my prayer. Dear friends, I don't know what struggles you're having or what sins are holding you back or what your deepest desires are. You may already spend a weekly hour or more in Eucharistic adoration. You may stop in to visit the Blessed Sacrament from time to time. Or maybe today will be the first time. Cultivate the practice of Eucharistic adoration in your life. Wherever you are now, ask Jesus to increase it in your life. We all have the problem we can't solve, the question we can't answer, the desire that's not been fulfilled. Take it all to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Get prepared to do the awkward thing. And then let him do the heavy lifting. Thank you, dear Lord for doing the heavy lifting.